Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about Black History Month, and then Tracy Bradford, candidate for Texas Lieutenant Governor, joins me in studio. Trudeau goes tyrant on the truckers, and Pentagon hosts a lecture on America should bend to China. Not kidding. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. On America Can We Talk, I talk about election integrity, border security, healthcare freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. And hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. February is Black History Month <clears throat> and quite often in other years I've done a lengthy series, I've featured different historical figures in America who are black. I just want to say a few words about today about Black History Month. Given the increased pushing of critical race theory in public schools and the division and dissension and, and uh, just the pitting of Americans against each other caused by critical race theory, there are many conservatives who just say, I don't want to hear anything about Black uh, History Month. I don't, you know, I just, it's too much. Uh, we are humoring this too much. And I want to make a couple points about that. I think that really matter. In America, the history of Black Americans is unique as compared with any other group of Americans in history. Obviously, we had the slave, slavery in America. We had the entire history of segregation. And I've always liked the idea of Black History Month from the perspective of two things, reminding us about the truth about America's history, because we did go through those things, but also reminding all of us what a great and noble and exceptional country America is that emerged from that, that fought, we had fought our own civil war because of slavery and because we we're gonna end racism. And we had our, the fight over uh, civil rights and the massive, wonderful civil rights movement so we did a lot in America, and I like celebrating that in Black History Month, that really America has a wonderful record of lifting itself out of discrimination and evil. The other reason I like uh, Black History Month is there's a very prominent black conservative woman uh, who's a good friend of mine, and she will often say that she gets told by other black conservatives, don't even talk about Black History Month. We don't have to have favoritism for blacks. But she has a really good point I wanna share. She was saying that her grandchildren well, they watch TV and movies and all sorts of, you know, entertainment. And too often, in her view, the villain, the bad guy, is a black American. And she said she loves Black History Month for the fact that many in media and in all sorts of organizations actually celebrate really prominent and maybe not widely known enough black Americans in history who were doctors, inventors, uh, you know, all sorts of wonderful contributions to American society. And she liked the idea that the Black History Month is a time when people try to do that to give her grandchildren a better perspective. I kind of like that. In closing out the first five on Black History Month, so the other day I was working out on my elliptical motion machine and we all know you have to watch something on television because otherwise you can't stand to do it. Well, what happened to Vianna is a movie I just love. The movie was called, it's called Hidden Figures. If you've never seen this movie, I cannot urge you strongly enough to watch it. The gist of it is Hidden Figures is the true story of three African-American women who worked for NASA 
early, early on, like getting John Glenn up into the, uh, in his rocket. And these women, the, the true story, first in a book and then made into a movie, talks about and shows the travails these women had because they were all brilliant mathematicians, I mean, really brilliant, and they were trying to go work at NASA, which has not always been, hadn't really been amenable to hire any blacks, and certainly black women was a double whammy. Uh, they did not see these women as qualified. The movie is great for a number of reasons. Number one, they, they, they were just astonishing in what they accomplished and contributed to NASA, including one who was the actual mathematician. Before we had our phones and computers like we have now, she was the mathematician that John Glenn trusted. Does she think these numbers are right? That had to do with his reentry, whether or not the, you know, the capsule would burn up. It wasn't at the right angle. So she, she rose to great prominence, stayed there a long time. And the other thing that is great about the movie is if you didn't grow up in the South, which I did not. I mean, I grew up in New York and my and way, way upstate New York. And, you know, my parents would talk about segregation. And honestly, it sounded like something out like another planet. Like, I couldn't imagine anything so ridiculous. But watching this movie kind of does remind you how things were in the South, in the segregated South. And even though today we, we have the civil rights movement, we've ended legal segregation, there are people alive today who lived through segregation or whose parents or grandparents did. And this movie just helps you realize why so many people might really hang on to the idea of Black History Month. So don't let the hostility and ugliness and wrongness of critical race theory cause you to think we shouldn't honor Black History Month. It's actually a great thing to do, and especially when it's not filled with attacks on America. The celebration of Black History Month is not about attacks on America, but about America's unique and extraordinary greatness. And that, my very fine friends, is today's first five which I made in eight minutes. Sometimes it's 10 after when I finish the first five. <laughs> Close enough. Anyway, I want to welcome you again to the show, America Can We Talk? So I have my friend Tracy Bradford here. Uh, she is running in Texas for Lieutenant Governor. And though I'm sure everyone listening knows what Lieutenant Governor is, it's the second in charge position. We have a position, we have a governor in Texas, and most states have a very similar setup. The Lieutenant Governor is actually the, uh, you know, the maybe next step down, but also what's so crucial about the Lieutenant Governor and many people say this, Lieutenant Governor has more power than the governor. I mean, it, it's a truly astonishing setup in Texas and maybe everywhere. And in Texas, part of what the Lieutenant Governor has to be able to do is understand how legislative issues get moved through the Texas Senate. Part of the crucial job the Lieutenant Governor has is to be, they are the, uh, the I don't know if the title is President of the Senate, they're, they're the ruler of the Senate. They make all sorts of decisions uh, in the Senate that impacts essentially whether some issues get through, they get to the right committee, they get on the floor, they don't. Very powerful position. And so we have an incumbent Republican who has a Republican challengers, and Tracy Bradford's one of them. So I want to have her today to tell you why she's running this race, Lieutenant Governor. Hi, Tracy. I'm happy to see you. You too. Yeah, good to see you. Okay, so I want to just start with on this uh, Lieutenant Governor thing. I do want to talk about the job. But before we get there, you previously were the president of the Texas Eagle Forum and of the Dallas Eagle Forum before that. And I used to watch you and your crowd, your gang of ladies, uh, down there in Austin, and you would put up, um, you would put up uh, videos, and you'd three of you stand there, and they say, "Hey, you know what happened today?" These three ladies, Tracy and her two <laughs> friends, and they would tell, "Well, yeah, you know, we're pushing this issue, and blah 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 happened, and here's the issue, and here's who to call." And I, I mean, honestly, better than any website I knew to go to, I can listen to these three, and they actually, or four, three, they worked <laughs> very hard on getting legislation through the Texas Senate, 
in ways that, honest to goodness, uh, it takes, as you might imagine, to get issues done. It takes tenacity, persistence, charm, all of that. So let's just start with you know, your, your uh, time as a president of Texas Eagle Forum, and you were down in Austin. I take it you really learned like, how the whole process works, correct? I, I'm also one of those people that I need to get to the root of everything. If I'm going to work on something, I want to know how it functions. So it was really important to me, especially if you're going to represent a whole group of people, <laughs> to get down there and, and research. I would go sit in committee hearings. I would go sit in the gallery because I wanted to know how our system worked in Texas. And it's actually a very unique system and, and works very well if it's allowed to because we don't want a lot of legislation passed, so it's actually a, a system set up to kill legislation. Well, I, I, since I'm a big limited government person, that sounds good to me. But Absolutely. So how many sessions were you down there active at some point? How many sessions of the legislature? Six, so it started in okay. 2011. Um, the session before that, I still had a baby. Our youngest was a baby, and so we were calling in and working through the phones, and then it was in 2011 we started going down there every session. Okay, so you went down there, and part of what you were doing is shepherding through the priorities mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of the Texas Eagle Forum. And I have to tell you, one of the things I didn't realize how consequential it was, was who was in charge of the committee mm -hmm. that the legislation got sent to, which you might think, well, hey, we have majority Republican. Look at this. We're going to get X, Y, and Z done. Yeah. And then you realize it went to the committee. Describe that problem. So in the Senate, it's a little, it's still the same issue because not everyone is as conservative or lined up with our priorities. But as you said in the opening, you know, when you have the governor and then the lieutenant governor, so the governor has his emergency concerns. Mm -hmm. The lieutenant governor is the one that decides if he's the gatekeeper. Do those get even through him? And so then you assign those to committees and having, you know, we do have the majority in the Senate. But even then, you're working with people who may not have the same strong convictions you do on issues, and that's what we ran into, because they appoint who is the chair, and then they decide which committee all that legislation goes to. Okay, they, the, the, uh, the, the lieutenant governor. governor in the Senate, yeah. Okay, so he or she mm -hmm. is picking the chairs of the committees, and, and actually, I, this, I will tell you, we moved to Texas in the year 2000, having lived in... California many years, and New York many years, and, and, uh, and why, thank you very much, we've been here almost, 20, almost 22 years, that's right, anyway, I could not believe my first little Republican women's meeting I went to, that they let Democrats, when they're not in the majority, Democrats can chair committees, w what is the possible reason for that? They try to convince us that it's this working together, and that, it, you know, we, we need, to, well, we were actually told by one legislator, we have to give them something to take back to their district. Why? That's exactly what we thought. Though, in the whole point to get our legislation passed, I'm confused. But um, that there's this belief that you're somehow going to build coalitions. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with being respectful in the way you work with each other. But to give away power, to give away your power that you have, and we've had it for 19 years, to do that on purpose, when you know you're going to be bringing strong conservative legislation down the pipe. What do you think the results of that are going to be? Exactly. And, you know, I had the thought, why would you even, I mean, it's like this gentleman's legislature, this southern gentleman thing, but why would you at all care if the Democrats said something good to bring back to their district? You're hoping that they don't look very good. They come back and, or they go back and say, hey, you know, I stood for XYZ and I couldn't get it through. Okay, let them say that. Exactly. And mind blowing. So, I know, I know. One of the, one of the many little trip-ups in the path when you're trying to get legislation passed where you're just walking away going, 
you know, what was that? I, I, it's one thing to have a system work to kill legislation. It's another when you watch and you start to pick up on what the little trickeries are to kill legislation. Kind of procedural trickeries. Mm -hmm. Can you quickly tell me about those kind so, of things? So what we see a lot of times is you'll, you'll see credit taken for passing legislation, but what in fact has been happening is either they strip the legislation and basically they're passing a caption or a title. The other thing would be they're, they're um, passing legislation at a certain time at, like there's a there's a clock because we have such short time five months every two years so they know that that clock that countdown if they pass it after that it will never make it through the other house so they can still say look we passed kill uh, protect girls sports knowing you passed it so late in the session there's no way it's gonna make it through okay that's actually raises one thing I want to be sure and talk to you about I do want to hear about your campaign but I know that you you and I share I think the similar views on, on most things and I am blown away every session, like this past session, and, and reiterate one thing she said before I forget my happy friends, because there are people who are not in Texas. We only have legislature once every other year for six months. This is by design so that they don't, you know, just pummel us with, it's kind of a good thing, you know, they can't make laws all day long. But the idea that you have a Republican majority and something like, you know, um, would be a good example. Uh, you know, whether transgender issues, you know, a, a seven-year-old boy, whether you should, is, should be legal for them to have their parents, in my view, force them through or manipulate them into gender transformation, that seemed like that would be snap, snap, done. And couldn't get it done. Why couldn't we get that done? Well, you know, in 2017, we took legislation down there and went office to office. We had model legislation. We had the subject matter experts all willing to come here. And we were told no by our conservative legislators in the House because it was too controversial. Senator Bob Hall did carry legislation. But what I'll tell you is with uh, people think that we don't have a problem here, but people are bringing their children to Texas. Currently, there are 2,000 of these procedures going on in the state of Texas. And we have um, had- Standard transition of minors? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And we have had the House and the Senate and all state offices all this time, and we can't protect our children. And again, you watch whether the bill is, is filed late or whether you've got a speaker who is refusing, he's refusing to ever pass this bill. He has said he will not pass this bill. So what can the Lieutenant Governor do in that position? I think you just pound the heck out of it. You go the bully pulpit every day and you direct the frustration and the, the outcry on the head of that, uh, the speaker. You may not, you don't want a Lieutenant Governor going in outside of his or her realm of power, but you sure do have the bully pulpit and you think back even through all of the COVID lockdowns. Why wasn't that used? Why, why were we not calling Abbott out every day for legislating as the executive, which is not part of his, not part of his parameter. Absolutely. You touched on something I want to be sure to mention. You hear legislators, I, I live in a district that has a Republican um, member of the state house. Mm -hmm. And frequently I, I asked one time, well, what about, it was some issue, how, how could that not pass? And the answer was, well, we just ran out of time. So, was, and I love to have you explain why that is not a good enough answer. Well, if I, a homeschool mom, know the, know the clock, if I can go look up the clock and know when we're planning to work legislation, we know what dates we have to have. I'm pretty sure that a legislator and his staff would know that because it's that important. So if it was important to you, if it was important enough to your people in your district, you would come into this with your legislation. You would know the time, right? You would know the calendar. And it's like it changes every year. 
it changes, I mean, it, it's not like it changes, I'm sorry, it's not like it changes every year, the clock's the clock. And so you know coming into this, and there, you start to pick up on things like that. You, you start to read the signs, let's say. So basically, they know the clock, and therefore they're just deciding to put things into place in the system at a time. They know they're running out of time. They can say, I really tried, I swear I gave a great mm -hmm. floor speech, you should have heard it. And I did a great letter of constituents, but we ran out of time. So, I mean, I, to get it, there was a piece out of a group in Washington. I had Wade Miller, you might know him, mm -hmm. on my oh, yeah. show the other day, and he was talking about that was one of the uh, tricks that many, not just Texas, but everywhere, mm -hmm. we ran out of time. We sure, and, and it's, it's just not true. You had time for the ones you want to get through. Absolutely. Like the mermaid capital of Texas. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. I digress. That's important. <laughs> um, so, you, had, you learned in your six sessions down there, working with the legislatures, how it all works, but did Dallas Eagle Forum and Texas Eagle Forum, weren't you pretty uniquely focused on social issues or did you do things on other issues? So why I love Eagle Forum is it's all issues are on the table. Fiscal issues, a lot of the, the items I worked on had to do with national security and how they applied to Texas. So whether it was the Interstate Compact, which is something we brought very early on, I think 2011 or 2012, it was filed all the time again by Senator Hall, but never moved. Um, which would help along the border or you know you do definitely pro-life pro-liberty religious pro-family but it's all of it we weighed in on on pretty much everything <laughs> no i love that actually that's one reason it was kind of a softball question because i know texas you go for them and you do hit on everything which i think is part of what the people who uh might think well that's that's a great little you know niche to know about but you I mean, I know how you are. You you know about all the issues because you've worked on them. Okay, so you've worked with the Texas, and we've had, by the way, Republican governor, Republican lieutenant governor, Republican majority in the House and the Senate for, I don't know, since 2011, I don't know what the year 19 is. Years. 19 okay, years. Okay, 19 years. And so here you are running, I mean, you have, and you as you mentioned earlier, I should have done my introduction. So you're homeschool mom, one child left, six uh, graduated. So. You've been teaching, you've been, and it seems like you could think of a lot of things to do, so why this race? <laughs> why did you go after Lieutenant Governor? It, you're right, because I actually now have three grandbabies, so I have plenty I could have done wow. at home. Yes. Um, I, I was asked, because I've, I've enjoyed being a grassroots activist. I was a volunteer, we did it because we really believed in the issues. But when this was brought to mind, in the past when someone asked, it'd be like, no, no. But I, ha I had to stop, like I had to go, okay, I need to think this through. And it seems like a huge leap, but you know what? We're at a place in our country where, and in our state where there has to be pushback. And we've watched missed opportunities. We've watched absent leadership, especially during the lockdowns. There was no calling out of, a, to me, a runaway governor when it came to executive order after executive order. And so we decided we're going to go for it. We did seek wise counsel. We thought it through. And, it, you know, it's bringing out discussions. We are going all over the state. And, and to me, this is the most exciting thing I've seen. We've hit the towns like Alpine, Level Land, Heiko, you name it. We're out in the middle of nowhere. I don't know where any of those are, but anyway. <laughs> and I'm going back to Alpine. It's beautiful. Um, and every place we've been, we've met the most incredible people. But here's the real interesting thing. You talk about we've had this for 19 years. We bring our, our we work on our, um, as delegates to the convention, we work on our platform, which is our belief statements as conservatives. And then we even made it easier by giving the legislators priorities. So we, we said, hey, all of this matters to us, but we're giving you these main five priorities. When we have been out talking to people, and these are people who are not 
um, involved in like we are. They just, they vote, but they're leaders in their community. They're they're concerned about their families, their legacy. When I ask them, what is on your heart? What are you concerned about? Without even knowing that they're listing them, they list our priorities. So you because really the answer was because the uh, state committee was in, in touch with the peoples with a conservative heart, conservative mindset. So that's exactly what. And we're clicking. And so to be able to tell these legislators this is what your average person out in the community is concerned about. They are concerned about property taxes, but they're also concerned about what's happening with our children with critical race theory and whether people want to believe it or not, it is in the schools and in people, oh, it's all over we've got schools. teachers, teachers coming to us for help. Yeah. So it's not, we passed a bill and it's gone. Okay. So what do you think about as Lieutenant Governor, I mentioned the uh, introducing you, this is the second position allegedly as Governor, Lieutenant Governor. So. I have had this sense many times that our governor and lieutenant governor kind of take a position together. Okay, we're going to, this priority is this, we st or this is our view on this issue. Do you think that's vital in order to have a strong Republican leadership to have the governor and lieutenant governor always on the same page or not? I think if you're working for the people, if you're working the priorities and, and you're working for small government and the principles, but when you come out at, for pre-K and you decide to support the governor because he deserves it or when it comes out for um, the mental health laws that they passed. Yeah. We remember those in 2019. You were on my show talking about those mental health laws. And we're seeing that we're seeing some of the repercussions because a lot of that set up for critical race theory as well as mandates, medical mandates. It, this is this is what people did not understand. This was not about let's stop shooters in schools, which I never saw them present any studies during any of those hearings that would actually speak to that. But this was a massive push for big government. And I don't co-parent with the government. Yeah. None of us do as parents. And that's what they've been pushing. So would I want to work with a governor whose priorities are not that of the, the conservative or the electorate? No, I, I would be pushing back against that. And as the gatekeeper in the Senate, that's where the power or the check comes. The checks and balances we have, right. that's where you get to use that, that power. So what are the things in the last, I don't know, um, six years or so that you've been really, really active. I know you've been an activist before that, but really involved. What things do you think should have gotten done that weren't or should never have been passed but were? I mean, I know it's a big question you have all, but I'm just curious things that really grab you. Well, the grid, having worked on the grid with Senator Bob Hall for nearly 10 years, um, I think we all know that should have. So basically means strengthening the grid so we all don't hazard, have. Not just the weather rising, not just the winter rising, but all hazard. And they were presented a very similar scenario back yeah. in around 2015. And it, it was it was ignored or it was it was pushed to pass things at the very end of session, knowing it couldn't make it and all the way through. And so time after time. So you would have thought this last session, who'd we go talk to? Whose bill would we be moving? Bob Hall. You would yes. think, <laughs> but it wasn't. And so there, that one stands out to me because it did impact not just we want the grid secure, it, impact, it impacted people's lives, both in monetary, but also people lost their lives because of that. And it was oh, nonsense. Yeah. For our listeners all around the country, we have listeners everywhere, including the great state of Texas. We had a massive, massive um, snow and ice storm last year. Um, we're here now here in 2022, but in 2021, and we had the state shut down uh, many places for a week or more and the, the power grid did not hold up. And so people lost, I mean, 
people say, well, it didn't go totally down, it didn't crash, it pretty close. Mm -hmm. um, and people lost their lives, couldn't get power. And this is one thing that many advocates, in fact, I also advocate on this issue, mm -hmm. this is a basic governmental responsibility. And when you know, it, it's kind of like this hedging your bets, well, it's probably not gonna be a problem, and mm -hmm. look at all the money we'd have to spend, and plus the regulators don't wanna be bothered with it, and plus the, the, you know, the power companies, they don't wanna have to do it. So it was kind of the, the people in power, legislatures, uh, the Senate and House, and the, you know, who did, the uh, higher ups just saying, this is too big a thing to chew off on a, risk something might happen, but now it happened. Yeah. And on the other side of that, money was being, subsidies were being given to renewables that did not show up when they they couldn't. And so you've got billions of dollars from federal and state money going into renewables that can't perform the task, and so there we were caught at, in fe last February. And so we, we, you know, if you want to be in the market, great, but you better be able to hold up your end of the bargain. So we should not be subsidizing renewables. Absolutely, absolutely. So there's that, and shouldn't have been passed. You know my feelings on mental health bills, but yeah, but so property mental health tax bills, grid, yeah, property tax. What's your quick thought on that? Well, you know we, that one is tied into education spending, and we have there's some great ideas about how to deal with abolishing property tax. But until we're really willing to have the gutsy talk about where we spend our money in education, we're never going to settle this problem. Because every time you start down that path to really talk about education spending, what happens? Everybody freaks out that you hate the kids, you hate the teachers, that's not it. I would love to see that we address this issue so that we can, we can abolish property tax, but in the meantime, the money, the waste, the redundancy that's in the whole education system, where the money is going to more administrative costs than it is the classrooms. We need to have some real talk about that and our spending problems. Are you talking about at the school district or at the state level At bureaucracy? the state level, at the bureaucracy. And the way the money's being spent and put to MNOs, where we could reduce that, there, there's, it's just really frustrating to watch because every year they're wanting more money. So we're putting more money in. And then when you go start researching the programs, state programs, where some of this money is going, when the mental health, that was some of them, you would go look at programs, well, they were recreating other programs. Yeah. And you already have them. You're already paying for them. And so when I look at all these different um, plans to reduce property taxes, part of it's paying down the schools, you know, the MNO, and it's like, okay, but are we controlling the spending? Or are they gonna look at that as free money, let's go spend somewhere else? And so that has to be defined by the legislature so the agencies don't have that discretion, and, is that right? And then the, you look at the lieutenant governor actually serves on the legislative budget, budget board that helps set the mission for the budget. And also the agencies, they set out the parameters for how the agencies will approach in asking for appropriations. So there again, you have an opportunity to weigh in as the gov lieutenant governor, I just promoted myself, the lieutenant governor on a very, the, the critical issues at the very beginning. Okay, so we have about, actually we only have 30 seconds to our radio listeners, for our radio listeners who are going off at the bottom of the hour. My name is Debbie Georgiatis. The show is called America Can We Talk? You can find it online at americacanwetalk.org. Every show, past interview, blog posts, everything you want to see on the website, americacanwetalk.org. You're going to go off for a three-minute break, but come right back. We have a great loaded show the second hour. Come right back. Okay, back to our people here uh, who are listening online. I want to be sure uh, to, so they can find you, Tracy, because, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty much in the grassroots world. I mean, it's kind of how I, I think about issues. I want the people involved. I don't Absolutely. like the government as a, the ruling class or the government, you know, that's like their job in life. Somebody else is a lawyer and these are a lawmaker. I, I want, I like it 
that the people are involved in lawmaking. So to find you, I believe I actually, uh, Mr. Becker, can you put her Chiron back up so you can see? Yeah, there you go. And so it's T-R-A-Y-C-E, the digit for Texas.com. T-R-A-Y-C-E for Texas.com, Tracy Bradford. Canada for Texas Lieutenant Governor. One last parting shot about why you're running or how people can help you. You know, the people can help our can our candidacy, but also some of the others. There's there needs to be a change. We need new leadership. I think it's never been more obvious than through the whole COVID lockdowns and all that mess. But you can go pass the word, share our information, share our videos, share our talking points, and tell your neighbors and your friends to go vote in the primary. We've yeah. got to vote in the primary. We started yesterday. This, exactly, and this is when yeah. it counts. Right now, voting in the primary. If we want new leadership to lead the state in the direction it needs to be going. Okay, we do, by the way, for out-of-state people, we have primary, our entire statewide leadership is on the ballot this time, and so we have primary challenges with the governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, um, and a lot of the state reps and state senate seats. So it's a great time to be an activist in Texas. Absolutely. Tracy, thank you for coming in. Thank you for having me. So good, good to see you. You, you too. Okay, folks, before we bring back to our radio listeners, my very quick topic at the bottom of the hour, which I will do, in a, and uh, I'll have to continue it after our break, but I want to talk about what is happening in Canada. Trudeau, I said Trudeau goes tyrant on the truckers. You cannot even believe what's happening. If you're watching these things online, then I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But I will tell you that Justin Trudeau has decided this Truckers Convoy for Freedom, which is basically, you know, your average American worker type people saying, you know, we don't want, they didn't, they're not just saying they don't any longer want to have a mandate on them as truck drivers. They want, they're saying, end all the COVID mandates. And the leaders of four of the provinces up in Canada have said, yeah, actually, we're really going to cut back. But Justin Trudeau has doubled down. He invoked the Emergency uh, Authorization Act, and he's literally like sending in the troops. Two things he did. He actually issued, under the Emergency Authorization Act, he issued an order that the bank assets of the companies who own these trucks, the truckers who own these trucks, should be frozen. So, so they're, you know, they're starving them out. They want the food to be delivered. They're trying to keep them from getting gasoline. But in addition to that, Trudeau, Prime Minister Trudeau, issued a second order, also in this emergency basis, saying that even the bank accounts of protesters who do social media um, postings in favor of the truckers' protest, they too are to be um, are to have their bank assets frozen. I mean, he's going full uh, tyrant, and it's really interesting. I'm going to share a couple quick things about that. Um, one of the uh, main outlets, the media outlets in Canada, was trying to tell the Canadian citizens how terribly awful this whole pro protest is, and they actually characterized people who are standing up for freedom as the as racists. If you believe in freedom, it's kind of a racist overtone to that argument. I don't know if people buy that up there, but there was an, uh, an equivalent of their civil liberties union in Canada who's come out against uh, Trudeau and basically saying, you know, you can't, you just can't do this. You can't um, treat these people like criminals because they're really not. Um, and this, uh, they are, there's a piece of litigation filed an attorney representing the truckers, basically saying the various standards required for the issuance of this emergency authorization have not been met. So courts can look at it, decide, did Trudeau even have the right to do that? But I just want to make the point, as I've made many times on this show, many, many elected leaders around the world, including in America, got on board with the notion of extremely aggressive control of the freedom of their people in America, in Texas, and everywhere else, got on board with the idea that COVID was going to be the excuse where everyone gets told, 
here's how you're going to live, here's when you can leave your home, here's whether or not you can go to a restaurant, whether you can get out on an airplane. And while many people, I used the analogy yesterday, the kind of frog, the, the water's slowly heating, and so we've had a, a kind of a rolling, aggressive growth in the power of government, and many people with a frog and the slowly heating water think, well, it's not so bad, we're still allowed to do this, we're still allowed to do this. But the great thing that's happened is COVID has kind of awakened the people, the sleeping giant of the people saying, actually, you've gone too far here. And the other thing is they can see not, they can see no end in sight. And I want to tell you a quote that Trudeau said, um, because I think it's really important understanding how um, extreme he is and how committed he is. Early on in April 2020, so we're just getting into COVID. We're just getting into, you know, it's pretty much of a problem. He issued a public statement, we'll never be able to get our freedom back until we get the vaccines. Now, in April 2020, there weren't any vaccines, and there were doctors all over the country and around the world saying, hey, we have, we have other treatments we could try. But he actually issued that statement all the way back in April 2020. Much speculation starting on a plant this seed, and I will come back to it. Um, after I do some more research, much speculation starting about whether or not Justin Trudeau has some financial interest in continuing the uh, use of the vaccines, the purchase of the vaccines, from uh, the, especially the mRNA vaccines. Um, he's tied to by this Dr. David Martin, who's been speaking up quite a bit about COVID, the idea that he is pushing these um, this continued shutdown when none of the evidence any longer justifies it because he has some financial interest. I don't know that to be true, but I will ask you if you don't think, if you think that sounds preposterous, you know, they, he wouldn't do that. I want you just to think about this. What other motivation does Justin Trudeau have to continue the COVID lockdowns given the facts on the ground in Canada and in the world? We now have various entities in authority saying, as it turned out, the mass didn't really help. Social distancing didn't help. Mounds of data with respect to the COVID vaccines and how people can still they get the vaccine, they can still contract COVID, they can still spread it, they can still be hospitalized, they can still die. So these aren't vaccines like vaccines we normally think. And we have more and more information available about the efficacy of all sorts of other treatments that doctors around the world have been saying, hey, these work really well. You know, ivermectin, budesonide, um, and uh, hydroxychloroquine, all sorts of other treatments. What is the reason that Justin Trudeau is so locked on not changing any of the, and Canada had it worse in America in terms of tyranny. So you ask yourself, if it's not money, what in the world is driving Justin Trudeau? Okay, one last short, uh, topic I want to do today, and um, I want to tell our listeners, I, I put Pentagon hosts a lecture, uh, Ben to China. I'm going to ask Mr. Becker to put up a tweet. This is from Gordon Chang, and I want to actually leave it up, leave it up while we talk about that. You can walk out if you want. Um, and you're welcome to stay too. Uh, so I'm sorry, I'm telling my happy guests here, you're welcome to stay and you are welcome to leave. But what I think this is almost breathtaking. Gordon Chang, who's been on the show many times, a wonderful, renowned expert about China, is waving the flag, waving, you know, just trying to say, do you see what's happening here? In the Pentagon, in their own university, the Pentagon has the um, defense, the National Defense University, NDU, they have a speaker coming tomorrow, tomorrow, who is going to give a lecture. And here's his description of his, by the way, the guy is a French economist. That should be one warning sign. But anyway, his description of his speech is, Western countries are still struggling 
to define their attitude toward the Beijing regime. In this talk on February 22nd, um, Thomas Piketty will argue that the right answer lies in ending Western arrogance. Okay, so it's a week from tomorrow. Ending Western arrogance and promoting a new emancipatory and egalitarian horizon on a global scale, a new form of democratic and participatory, ecological, post-colonial socialism. This is not some right-wing person characterizing what Piketty is going to say. This is what he put out. He's going to talk about it. And he's coming to talk to you know, the National Defense University. This is where we train our elite military, the people who shape policy and understand the big picture. What's America trying to do? So these people who get the honor of going to National Defense University are going to have this lecture by this guy, Piketty, uh, to talk about basically bend to China. Just, just admit that China you know, is going to win this whole argument. And, and actually, another quote I think is really, really important to understand. Uh, by the way, the same author wrote a book last year, Thomas Piketty, called Time for Socialism. Okay, we're going to hit more of why this is so completely terrible. The US Pentagon sponsoring a lecture written and delivered by a French socialist who promotes replacing Western capitalism with so-called Democrat socialism and whose all but express purpose of kowtowing to communist China out of fear. So Gordon Chang, God bless him, he's saying, what in the world are we doing? And I want to explore that a little bit because we talked about in this country, I've said quite often, in this country, there is no longer a Democrat party in the traditional sense that your grandfather voted Democrat because he supported unions, whatever reason he had. Today's ruling class in the Democrat Party has been overtaken by Marxism. What they put in their national platform is Marxism. It's nothing less. And so you can say, okay, well, that's interesting, that's fine. But part of the reason people don't get as alarmed about this as they should is because we've also had the educational, academic influence that argues for the moral equivalence of all ideas. This is a profound uh, a tenet of wokeism a tenant of wokeism that says, you know, really, who are we to say freedom is better than socialism? Who are we to say, you know, capitalism is really better than communism? They're all wonderful ideas, and we're in this wonderful globalist universe of ideas, and isn't it swell? We're opening our hearts and minds to bigger ideas. And so this mindset that has pervaded America's academic institutions has also pervaded the military. And you might remember a few months ago, we had on a gentleman who is a, uh, he's only in a, the guard, and I think he's a Marine National, whatever it is, one of the prisons of the Air Force, of the uh, military guard. So he goes for his weekend training once a month. Normally they go and they practice target shooting, conditioning, uh, strategy, catch up in latest military planning. They spent the whole weekend talking about social justice warrior garbage. They talked about how you really, really need to be careful the words you use, encouraging these people who are there, who are of all race, ethnicity, national origin, skin color, urging them to say, you know, you need to be really careful. And if someone uses a word or a term that you find offensive, don't complain to them, turn them in. This is what he was taught by the military. So he says, you know, pretty soon you're looking around at all these people and you've been training with them and they're all really nice people. Um, but now what you're doing is telling them that they are supposed to turn in their neighbors very Orwellian and it's also was down the weeds on pronouns and transgenderism and honoring the pronouns people choose and part of the reason the military got there is back to what happened under the Obama administration for eight years and we talked about it ad nauseum during the Obama administration 
President Obama and his Marxist communist mindset spent eight years cleaning out of the top levels of US military people who actually believe in America actually believe in the concept of you know the Declaration of Independence and rights from God because you're born and they're all created equal and we have right to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness the structure of our freedom which is essentially created by the Constitution all of those pro-America thinkers and people who actually look at American history and say well it wasn't perfect I mean no country is perfect but it's the best country there's ever been. It's exceptional because of the ideas. All these people were weeded out and forced out of the upper echelons of the military. Obama did what many communist leaders do as they come to power. They start to pull away the people, pull out of power, people who can convince the masses to believe in their country. So now we're at the point that Pentagon actually invited this guy to come in and talk about, and he's talking about bending toward socialism. And he's, he's not, the way at least it's worded in the several articles I read, it's not about let me help you ex ex understand how Chinese communists think so then you recognize it better. It's advocacy. It's telling them we can't be so provincial, so old school, so locked into this silly old ideas of America. We got to get up and stand up and fight. This is, uh, and, and, and be better and bend to socialism. And I want to throw a couple of uh, points that are kind of related to this. Because I think this is, when I tell you that country is bending towards socialism, we had uh, Sidney Powell on the show, I don't know when that was, six weeks ago or something, and she was making the point, you know, we're not like uh, near the edge of the cliff of socialism. The bus has gone over the cliff. All we're doing is trying to grab a branch or something, a root, and hold on and get us back to freedom. We're that far gone. That is how she describes the Washington government, which as an aside, is why I care so much about state government in Texas and every other state. We have the left-wing government that is in power in Washington completely committed to the socialist agenda. And the only place you can actually protest and actually put policies in place that stand up for America are at the state level. You need to elect people who see the big picture. But back to what's happening at the Pentagon. So this is all gonna, this Pentagon sponsored guy is gonna come and tell them, you know, time to bend to socialism. And of course you had, you know, Sebastian Gorka weighed in, that's crazy, and, and Gordon Chang weighed in, that's crazy. But I wanna just talk about other little ideological roots that all play a part of this. The term was used by the cultural Marxists, the long march through the institutions. The communists who came to America in the early 1900s quickly realized that they could not overtake America through military force, through communist military force. But they actually wrote out the idea saying, you know, but the way we can take down America is through a series of steps, a series of invasions of various aspects of American society. They obviously focus on education, not just K through 12, college, grad school, the whole academic world. It became an assumption uh, by whatever, the 70s or 80s, that any political science professor in pretty much any university was probably a communist, at least a Marxist or a socialist. And so this long march of institutions has been going on in academia, in Hollywood, in legislatures, and many other facets of American society, including in our military. This just didn't happen, you know, suddenly. It didn't happen suddenly. It was the, the softening of America, the 
pushing of America to be open to the idea that maybe socialism is better, maybe communism is better, and also to denigrate love of America. Another piece I want to point got us to where we are. We have the 1619 Project, which New York Times uh, started right after, I think it was right after Trump won, but they all of a sudden discovered that America wasn't really created in 1776. We all should look back and, and talk about the 1619 Project said America's real founding identity was with respect to the, uh, tied to the date the first slave ships arrived in America, trying to say essentially that America's very identity not, is not tied to the ideas in the Declaration of the Constitution, which I'm endlessly celebrating, but the ideas of evil and slavery and, and mistreatment of people by races. And this is another aspect of the same mindset of long march of the institutions, this undermining of the belief in America. 1619 Project comes along. You have BLM and Antifa, also basically funded by Chinese uh, Communist Chinese Party. If you didn't know that, we covered that many times. Funded by the Chinese Communist Party and their entities in America, the Chinese Communist Party funds these socialists here, who in turn fund BLM and Antifa. So we are supposed to be thinking, oh my gosh, BLM and Antifa, they are an organic uprising against, the, you know, uh, against a terribly oppressive country. And the fact actually is that this is contorted and manipulated contorted and manipulated, designed to cause us to lose faith and trust in our precious country. So you have Antifa funding, BLM, you have CCP. I also want to mention, I put in the links today, um, this is an article by a guy named Rush Doshi, and he writes, um, he used to work at Brookings Institute. Now Brookings Institute is barely, I mean, they're, they're left of center. They're not socialist, but they're not conservative. And he did a great piece, wrote a piece trying to describe China's long-term strategy. And he's running through how China, and we've had Gordon Chang on the show talk about this many times, but China has an ancient, back to the era of dynasties, an ancient thought that the Chinese people are destined to rule the world. It's their term. It's a mandate from heaven. And this was what they believed at the time the dynasties were around, and it maybe dropped out of favor for a while, but the current leader in China, Xi Jinping, openly says he loves this idea that the Chinese people are intended to rule. That's just an ethnic thing. Compounding that with the Chinese Communist Party's power in this world and the way they control their people, their speech, everything about the country, they are pushing, as we've talked about countless times, China's pushing out communism in every way they can. In part, they're doing it through friendly loans to countries in, in Africa and, and places where they might need some extra money. And China comes in, oh yeah, we'll help you build your network. We'll help you clean out this port. We'll make a lovely port. But then of course the countries cannot afford to pay China back and then China owns the port. This kind of thing China's been doing is the Silicon Road Initiative. It's been going on for decades. And I'm saying why I'm raising all this, all this plays in to where we got to in 2022. We have millions of millennials who actually think, because they've gone through American academia, they actually think that socialism and Marxism are fairer and better, and that America, as, as a capitalist country, is somehow evil and repressive. They actually think that. It helps them, it helps the left with their attack on Americanism relentlessly all the time. And so they've got young people thinking that they have the, the military now embracing this idea that they're going to, instead of 
teaching our young people the unique, extraordinary, and great ideas of America's founding, how America's ideas of the freedom of the individual and rights from God because you were born and, and the right to own property and all the precious rights spelled in the Bill of Rights, instead of teaching them Americanism, which would then motivate them to really want to defend America, they're sending their best and the brightest to this defense uh, university so they can be taught by a French socialist that it's time for America to bend to socialism. And the reason I went through that long riff, that I actually had more, but I'm going to not do it today when I'm running out of time. But I do want to urge you to think about this. The only people who can stand up to this you know, long march through the institutions, this relentless pushing of the anti-American Chinese Communist Party, which is now supported by most of the radical Marxist movements in this country, which is pretty much the Democrat Party. You have all of this ideological pressure, theoretical pressure on America to just give in to the inevitable, China's going to rule, and you know what, don't be the foolish one still saying, actually, I believe in America is founded, I love freedom of speech, I love freedom of assembly, I love all my rights, I like freedom of religion, I want property rights. You know, don't, don't be this foolish kind of antiquated, you know, school marm type. Get with the program, wake up and recognize what is happening and join the club. Be in the happy crowd who agrees to all this and you can agree to the government's tyranny because if you're really nice, maybe you won't have as much tyranny befall you. Last element I want to plant about this, I'm going to dig in and find more about this to share with you. But when Kissinger, Kissinger worked with President Nixon and you may remember that was the era when Nixon said, we got to open up this market to China. It's a beautiful thing. You know, China's going to buy our products and we're going to open up to this, you know, massive, massive population. Kissinger, and I don't have a site for this, so I'm going to say my lawyerly language, is alleged to have said that he, even at that time, working with Nixon, so, so back you know, decades ago, he said, America is eventually going to fall to China. China's bigger, they're more determined, they, are, they have bigger armies, they have bigger commitment, they have more control over their people, they have more ability to, to arm their people, I mean their, their military, arm their military, they have more determination to be for geographic expansion, and America, you know, we're just kind of trying to sit here and be happy and free and, you know, have our lovely homes and three kids and go to the soccer games and just live life. But Kissinger said back then, you know, essentially, we need to somehow slowly prepare America to recognize that China's ideas may have to be embraced here. He wasn't, I mean, this is, again, alleged by some pretty reliable people, but I'm going to try to get to a source I feel like I can quote to you. But the allegation is, this is even Kissinger's thinking back then, our policy toward China has always been to get along with them with the recognition that someday they're probably going to overtake us. This is why, yeah, several points I want to make about being an activist in America today. Number one, you've heard on my show, Gordon Chang, we'll have him on again soon. We're going to have him, I hope he's speaking at our fall summit, you know, a brilliant uh, analyst about China and really understanding down to the nitty gritty of the ideology, plus the massive use of military and their, the way the Chinese Communist Party controls their people. Um, so Gordon Chang is, is a great source. Another one I've had on the show many times is Frank Gaffney, and he actually spoke at our summit last year, um, and he was talking about too about China, and he's been working trying to raise the you know flag of awareness, raise help people to understand you know China may seem to be a great trading partner. Look at all these cheap products we get because they're all manufactured in China, but what you end up with is dependent on China, weakening America's manufacturing, 
uh, core. Uh, Trump tried to bring that back, and he did bring some back. But the whole idea of China, if they control your medicines, where virtually all medicines in the world are made is in China, very alarming, some in India, but mostly China. Then uh, You go to your doctor, and he says, oh, yeah, here's your prescription for ivermectin. Probably made in China. And so you have China controlling so much of America. We are in desperate, vital need in America for people who recognize America's unique, extraordinary greatness. That's my litmus test on candidates. I can meet a lot of nice candidates, and I, I get asked all the time to endorse or to ho have them on my show or host an event in our home. I'm telling you, I want to know people get the fight we're in. Because if you don't think this is the fight we're in, then you shouldn't be running for dog catcher. You shouldn't be running for anything. Because this is a at the state level, at the local level, stand up for America's ideas, be the leader in your state, and, and get behind candidates who understand this, who don't just run on, I am, you know, ex-pro, pro, pro, whatever it is, pro-life, which is a great issue, or pro-strong border. They're all great issues. You need people who see the big picture, the big issue of what is happening to America, and are signing up to say, yeah, I'm going to fight that fight. I want to fight that fight, not just, and I, I love strong border. I, I, think, I, I think we have to have it. I, it's disgraceful in Texas. We haven't done it ourselves, but we need people to see that really big picture and then help people understand the connection between holding on to America's freedom and you know being pro-life and pro-family and pro-border and pro-strong military and get out the you know LGBTQ agenda, the social justice agenda out of the military. We need people who can connect the dots and not just down at the level of I am pro-LGBTQ, I'm, I'm anti that. Talk about what happens if you allow a country, the very identity of people, uh, to be defined by the latest whim of some, you know, some leftists. And so we're, we're at a vital, vital time in our country. And if you have, um, if you, trying to watch my clock, uh, if you have elections coming up in your state, primaries, take the time to understand where the candidates stand on these things. I mean, do they understand at all? Do they roll your eyes if you say, you know, there's a really big problem in Washington. It seems like, you know, we're really trending Marxists. Who's going to stand up? Because I tell you folks, in Washington, D.C. right now, in fact, if you watched my show last week, uh, we had a gentleman, or yeah, last week, Kyle Scheidler from the Center for Security Policy. And, and when he was done talking about what the DHS, Department of Homeland Security, put out, where they recently, in a recent bulletin, a week ago yesterday, they put out a bulletin saying, you cannot challenge the government's position on elections outcome, and you cannot challenge the government's position on COVID without being considered a, dimensional, a potential domestic terrorist. If you think I'm exaggerating, go to our website, americacanwetalk.org. You can read the bulletin. I put it up myself. I highlight it. I show you where it is. It's right there in black and white. We're ending, you're getting near the end of the show for our radio listeners. And so on radio, if you aren't just, li if you haven't listened before, my name is Debbie Georgiatis. The show is America Can We Talk? And you can find the website at americacanwetalk.org. I'm on air live Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time. Thanks for listening. Come back tomorrow. For those of you listening online, okay, I'm a little wound up, but I got to get down to earth here. We close the show by telling you every week why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So we start our show today talking about Black History Month, and um, on that, discuss with critical race theory, which you should be discussing, should not spill over against Black History Month. A fair and objective account of noble black American leaders throughout American history has value, and real role models can and should take the place of mindless stereotypes in movies and television. 
historical accuracy carries far more potential for righteous uplift of all people. We have a little typo there. Okay, we're in a hurry today. Um, then Hollywood and typecasting around the hood. Commitment to accurate history will not allow the denial of the harshness of segregation and racism and the struggle to get past it will also not allow permanent branding of contemporary people as oppressors or victims based on skin color. Rare gem of a movie that illustrates all these points, hidden figures, you should go watch it, it'll just make you smile. Uh, and then Trudeau goes tyrant on the truckers. I, I didn't even have the videos ready today. I mean, they're really getting violent, but Trudeau invokes the emergency powers, freezes bank accounts of truckers and of anyone who makes a social posting supporting the truckers. I'm glad my bank isn't in Canada. Okay, attempt at brute force control. Canadian civil liberty experts deny that conditions warrant invoking emergency powers. They filed litigation. Trudeau does not have popular support. Truckers are nonviolent, everyday Canadians of every skin color and ethnic background. And I think it is a parallel to fighting over slavery. I didn't get to this point, but I'll briefly make it now. Many people are saying the truckers have done enough damage. They need to go home. They made their point. But I'm going to tell you, they haven't made their point until they drop the, uh, the mandates. And it is the idea people were told in the time of slavery. Okay, you made your point. Thank you very much for your, for your opinion. But the, the answer has to be no. What's happening is so wrong, just like slavery, we're going to keep fighting. It's freedom or not freedom, and there is no middle ground. Trudeau's actions make no sense in terms of COVID. The panic pandemic is essentially over. Mandates and other restrictions being lifted all over the globe. This is fueling speculation that Trudeau has an unacknowledged financial incentive for mass vac vaccination. More on that tidbit tomorrow. And Pentagon hosts a lecture, Bend to China. National Defense University to host lecture whoops, I'm sorry, at the National Defense University, actually calling for an end to Western arrogance and an embrace of a more egalitarian global justice and post-colonial socialism. This reflects loss of understanding of what the Pentagon is charged with defending, which is the real idea of America. Obama's years included purge of America's patriot war warrior class, and this lecture in 2022 is among the byproducts of that purge. Paraphrasing from a free people's suicide and David Lane at American Renewal, if the hundred centuries clock of civilization is compressed to a single 24-hour day, America's freedom and republic appear only in the last minute or so before midnight. But don't give up. The Pentagon must be massively restaffed with better students of American exceptionalism who know what they are defending. And that, my very fine friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you so much for tuning in every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. America, can we talk truth about America? Can